0: Basically, Trump was elected to drain the swamp, but with his picks um, for leadership positions, it looks more like he's going to be flooding it.
1: I'm Mike Peebles, and this is Outside View. Last time on the podcast, I was exploring the reasons why Donald Trump won the 2016 presidential election. The conclusion I came to was that Trump was able to tap into a sense of dissatisfaction with America today and the social progress of the last 30 years. This was coupled with a number of failures of the Clinton campaign to connect meaningfully with voters. However, something that still perplexes me was why Trump's message connected so well with voters. And why was there such a strong sense of dissatisfaction with America today? I felt the answer must lie in America's values. I'm a strong believer that values are tied up with history. So today, the first step towards understanding those values is understanding America's past. So here begins a brief history of the United States of America. Here's the two-minute version. What what were the big events and okay. why Well, important?
0: American Revolution, obviously, fighting Great Britain, no taxation, without representation. The uh, British people that lived here were trying to escape religious persecution and all that, so they mm-hmm. wanted their own place. And then 1812 wasn't that important. Britain tried to... it was like a trade dispute. Then you go to the Civil War, kind of the first and really only major conflict between the U.S. as itself, where we fought each other over slavery, states' rights trading things, and just kind of like the general changing uh, industrial revolution where it was going from a more agrarian uh, culture to an industrialized machinery and whatnot. Then you, Wild Wild West, expansion, manifest destiny as you go out west, conquering, slaughtering a lot of natives, which wasn't great, and then like the building of the railroads, which actually kind of connected the U.S. to each other, It started Mm -hmm. seeing a buildup in the Midwest, where that's what Kansas City came from, Mm -hmm. it was just a little outpost until the railroads. 1900s uh, started cars, light yeah. and automobiles, and then obviously the two world wars, mm-hmm. and in between that, the Great Depression, which my great great grandparents lived through. Mm-hmm. The, like, that was just crazy because it was a turn of things with the stock market crashed, uh, There were some terrible weather weather patterns, including the Dust Bowl in the Midwest, which wiped out farms and like literally blanketed whole towns in feet some feet of dust. Mm-hmm. And then they finally got to, they got back because FDR and he had some solid social policies, CCC and whatnot. Until World War II. World War II then changed from where the U.S. was kind of always a big player, Mm -hmm. but now they were the main guy. They were the player in the world. And that happened with a post-war boom up until like the mid-60s where it kind of fell off and then we got trapped with Vietnam where, where we kind of went from seeing the Russians as the worst until we had to deal with our little territories, the Philippines and Puerto Rico and all these other ones that wanted either freedom or their own kind of like to become a state or Alaska and all that. Uh, 70s, weren't that great. Nixon scandal, mm-hmm. uh, gas shortages. My mom always tells me about that. They have to wait for like an hour or two at a gas, a gas line. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of like rations back to like the first world war eighties, uh, Reagan kinda brought it back along with the more just general upswing in the uh, uh Wall Street mm. before that all ha- like went down in the nineties, Black Friday. no wait, was that I think there's like two Black Fridays in US history. Yeah. Like the the one that happened in the Great Depression and that one. Mm-hmm. And then we got into two thousand and we've you know, been in the Middle East for the last sixteen year or thirteen years practically. Yeah. I even remember when that started when I was like seven. Mm. And I remember thinking like, wow, this has been going on for a while. <laughs> that was thirteen years ago. <laughs> Uh, and then yeah, Obama, and the first black president, big, uh, big change for the US. And then here we are in 2016 with Trump, and mm-hmm. that's pretty much it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> there are many parallels between the history of the United States and of New Zealand. Both countries have been home to populations of indigenous people for far longer than they have been settled by European populations. Both became known to European powers due to discovery by European explorers and both were later settled by European migrants. In both cases, the indigenous people got rather a raw deal, and both are now part of the English-speaking world, the so-called West. America first came to the attention of continental Europe, thanks to Christopher Columbus. Conflict within Europe meant that the traditional route to Asia on land via the Silk Road was compromised, meaning that a new route to Asia, or the Indies, was required. Columbus proposed a western route across the Atlantic Ocean. This was in 1485, but scepticism from the Spanish and Portuguese monarchies meant that he didn't have the support to fund his voyage until 1492. That scepticism was well-founded. Columbus completely failed on his objective of finding a western route to Asia. Instead, he discovered the Americas. Interestingly enough. Columbus went to the grave, insisting that the lands that he had discovered were in fact part of Asia. Muppet. Anyway, after this discovery, European populations sought to settle the Americas. Spain, France and England all established small colonies in North America, which grew. While countries such as Spain and Portugal were very present in South and Central America, the dominant presence in North America was that of the English, with 13 colonies on the east coast. Many of these early English settlers travelled to America as servants, and many African slaves were brought over as well. The British colonies were established in the 17th and 18th centuries, and the population in these colonies steadily grew. Thanks to a hands-off approach from the government in London, active local political scenes developed in these colonies. The predominant style of politics was town hall style democratic movements, with everyone, at least everyone who was white and male, having a voice. In 1763, however, King George III of England issued a proclamation that marked a desire of England to take a more hands-on approach to the management of the American colonies. The proclamation was followed quickly by the introduction of a number of taxes. These taxes, in turn, would become the catalyst for the independence movement in America, The American colonies had no representation in the British Parliament and no taxation without representation quickly became a rallying cry. From that point onwards, protests against British rule in the 13 colonies became increasingly common. These culminated in 1763 with the so-called Boston Tea Party where a group of the so-called Patriots destroyed a consignment of tea that had been imported by the British. The British retaliated with a series of punitive acts of parliament, which only increased the degree of anti-British sentiment. The colonies began forming secret alternative governments and training militia groups, preparing for revolution. Representatives from the 13 colonies formed a body called the Continental Congress, via which they sought to coordinate revolutionary activity. War finally broke out in 1775, when the British government declared Massachusetts to be in a state of rebellion. American rebel militia began fighting, successfully, to take control of various settlements and outposts in the colonies. Then, in 1776, the Continental Congress passed the Declaration of Independence to formally declare their international sovereignty. This formally established the United States of America as a sovereign, independent nation. As an aside... At this stage, the USA consisted of only 13 colonies on the east coast of North America, a fraction of the size of the country we know today. It wasn't smooth sailing from there, however. The British weren't to be beaten so easily. Having been largely kicked out of North America, British forces returned in 1776 and retook large areas of the colonies, including New York City's, after a series of victories against George Washington's American army. Things looked grim for the American revolutionaries, who were at a serious disadvantage against the might of the British military. However, in 1778, in a bold political move, the Americans signed an alliance with France, who became the first nation to formally recognise the United States of America. France, who had an intense international rivalry with Great Britain, began sending supplies and military personnel To support the USA and soon the Netherlands and Spain joined suit by also formally recognizing the United States. Suddenly the British were fighting many enemies with no allies and their advantage against the revolutionaries was dwindling. The Americans won a series of decisive victories late in the war and in 1781 the British withdrew its armies from its former territories. Britain continued fighting against French and Spanish forces in their colonial territories for a few more years. The French and Spanish recognition of the United States had triggered fighting across other European colonies in North America, such as Florida and Louisiana. In 1783, a peace treaty was signed in Paris, which formally ended the War for Independence, and expanded the United States to include larger amounts of territories west of the 13 colonies original colonies. America then began the process of nation-building. At this stage, the Continental Congress was the only federal institution in existence, and the war had left the United States in significant debt. All power was held by state legislatures, which meant that there was no coordinated national effort towards economic growth. There was a growing realisation that stronger central government was needed. A movement to strengthen the powers of central government was led by Alexander Hamilton of Hamilton the musical fame in 1787 a constitutional convention meeting was held in Philadelphia it was here that the us constitution was crafted to establish a strong central government that nevertheless left the states with adequate powers of their own the constitution left the united states with a two house legislature the upper house the senate would represent all states equally, while the lower House of Representatives would have representatives from districts of roughly equal population. There would also be the Executive Branch, led by the President and his Cabinet, and consisting largely of civil servants carrying out their orders. Broadly speaking, the House of Representatives would draft and pass legislation, which would then be approved by the Senate. The Senate would also have to approve presidential appointments. The President and the Executive Branch would have final say on new laws drafted by Congress with the power to sign these into effect, or to veto them. Ratifying the Constitution was more complicated, however. Leaders in the larger, more thriving states were hesitant to cede power to the new federal government. There was also a contingent that feared that a powerful federal government may become as corrupt and as trustworthy as the British government that they had just escaped. In the current political climate, I would probably consider those fears well-founded. However, the Constitution was ultimately signed and ratified in 1789, followed by the passing of an entrenched Bill of Rights Act to protect American citizens, to some extent, from a tyrannical government. George Washington was elected the first President of the United States later that year. I want to pause the history lesson briefly, and take a second to have a look at this fear of strong government more closely. I was most familiar with it as a justification for opposing gun control and defending the right to bear arms, and it was never something that I really understood. Having now looked at the history though, and done the research, I feel like I have a better sense of where it comes from. Americans were very proactive and transitioning from colony to country, and they fought hard to secure their independence from what they saw as a corrupt government in Great Britain. Thus, it makes sense that they would want to ensure that the federal government doesn't become the same monster that they once defeated, which they have attempted to do with many checks and balances within the government system, and with the retention of significant power at state level. We've just seen that in effect with Washington State blocking Donald Trump's executive order on the Muslim ban. Anyway, back to the story. 90s. The federal government grew, began clearing debts, and solidified international relations with other countries. The USA became more and more prosperous, and in 1803 the USA purchased from France a large expanse of land called the Louisiana Colony, which comprised the modern Midwest and much of the Bible Belt in the South. In this era, the concept of manifest destiny became popular. This was a belief that the United States of America was destined to expand across the North American continent, which was popular with several prominent politicians at the time. At this time, a large portion of what is now the United States was part of Mexico. The 1800s were an important time in the expansion of the United States of America. In 1835, the Mexican state of Texas, which had been colonised by a large number of American settlers, revolted against Mexico and became an independent republic a year later. In 1845, in the context of extreme financial pressure, they voluntarily became a state of America. While in Texas, I got a sense that many modern Texans have a lot of pride in this revolution and in their former independence, although that is in spite of the fact that one of the big issues leading to revolution was the right of Texans to own slaves. In 1845, the same year, a war broke out between the US and Mexico, who still considered Texas to be part of their own territories. Mexico was convincingly defeated, and when they signed a peace treaty in 1848, Mexico relinquished a large portion of territory in what is now the southwest of the USA, namely California, Nevada, Arizona, and New Mexico. The final piece of the American puzzle was the Oregon Territory, which had been occupied and administered by the British since the early 1800s. In 1846, the British and Americans signed a treaty which split the Oregon Territory into two. The southern part, which today are the states of Oregon and Washington, became part of the United States, while the northern part, which is today British Columbia, was retained by the British. The United States was now the massive country that we know today, but only a few years later there was a threat of the country being torn apart again. The rights of Americans to own slaves became a hot topic in 1848 and tensions began to rise between the abolitionist North and the pro-slavery South. In the 1860 presidential election, Republican Abraham Lincoln ran on a platform of abolishing slavery and convincingly won the election. However, after that election, several slave-owning, cotton-producing states began to form the Confederacy and then declared themselves as the independent Confederate States of America. Four more states joined, leading to a total of 11 Confederate states, for example, Texas, North Carolina, South Carolina, and others. The Northern Union refused to recognise the Confederacy, and in 1861 the Civil War officially began when Confederate forces attacked Unionists in South Carolina. With hindsight, the war was never going to end well for the Confederates. The European states did not recognise the Confederate states as sovereign. And thus they were left fighting a much larger and much more well equipped army in the form of the Unionists, with no international support. In spite of that, the war was a long and hard fought one. Confederate forces consistently repelled and embarrassed their northern opponent in the earlier parts of the war. Abraham Lincoln was heavily and personally involved in the war, and implemented a shipping blockade of Confederate ports, and was ultimately involved in the appointment and dismissal of many Union generals. In 1864, he successfully ran for re-election. The Confederacy's luck seemed to be waning however, and the end of the war was in sight. Lincoln also favoured a Reconstructionalist approach to the south, rather than heavily punishing these states for their disobedience. General Lee, the head of the Confederate armies, finally surrendered in 1865. Only five days after the surrender, however, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated in Washington, D.C. The resulting aftermath of this was that while there was some focus on reconstruction, the South was still heavily punished, leaving it much poorer than the North for the next century. This led to some resentment that remains today. The rest of the century was dominated by industrialization and rapid economic growth, particularly in the West. The arrival of the railway made internal travel much more possible, and per capita income in the United States became the highest in the world. The United States had arrived, and truly now was a world power. At the end of the 19th century, the Progressive Era began. In response to dissatisfaction with corruption, and the problems associated with industrialization and urbanisation, social activism became widespread. A big part of this was the women's suffrage movement, along with the prohibition movement and other progressive initiatives. The United States government introduced the 19th Amendment, giving all women nationwide the right to vote in 1920. Prohibition itself was passed later the same year. While this was going on, the First World War had been raging in Europe. Originally, the United States viewed this as Europe's problem and had stayed out of the fight. However, they joined the war after German submarines had attacked and sunk several U.S. trade ships. Then-President Woodrow Wilson believed that the United States should have an active role in global affairs, and was heavily involved in drawing up treaties post-war and in the design of the now-defunct League of Nations. However, ultimately he was stonewalled by Congress, and the U.S. did not join, staying instead relatively focused on its own domestic affairs rather than international happenings. This approach seemed to work for a time. The 1920s were a time of boom for the United States. Having gotten out of the war relatively unscathed, the country was establishing itself as a significant international player. Hospitals and schools were modernising, and thanks to the stock market, the economy grew and prospered spectacularly. However, in 1929, the stock market, which had now become a bubble, burst and left the United States, and much of the wider world, in the grips of the Great Depression. The US people elected Democrat Franklin Roosevelt in 1932, who championed the New Deal era. The New Deal policies would look familiar to anyone involved in the first New Zealand Labour government. They were all about establishing welfare programs and safety nets, regulating the banking sector, the stock market, and strengthening workers' unions. As World War II broke out in Europe, the United States was still clawing itself out of the throes of the Depression. The United States was again reluctant to become involved in the fighting, thanks to congressional legislation aimed at preventing entry into foreign conflicts. Roosevelt positioned the US to give financial and munition support to Allied powers, but committed no troops. However, that changed in 1941, when Japan launched a surprise attack on the US naval base at Pearl Harbour. The United States declared war on Japan and Germany, effectively ending years of US isolationism. From that point onwards, until perhaps today, the US has remained active in world affairs. American forces were crucial in the defeat of Germany, and their involvement in the Pacific was probably instrumental in preventing Japanese conquest of the entirety of Oceania. Fighting alongside the British and the Russians, American forces defeated Germany in mid 1945, and began occupation of Western Germany. After dropping two atomic bombs in Japan in August 1945, Japan surrendered also. Following the Second World War, the US sought to spread capitalism and liberal democracy around the world, while Russia or the USSR desired the spread of totalitarian communism. Tensions rose between the two superpowers as both tried to spread their own influence, and limit that of the other. America stayed actively involved in Europe, both trying to rebuild the continent after such a devastating war, and to prevent the spread of communism. The US fought two wars, the Korean and Vietnam wars, trying to prevent the spread of communism through East Asia. It developed and grew a nuclear weapons arsenal in an attempt to gain an upper hand over the USSR, and funded ambitious space exploration projects to attempt to show its technological superiority over the USSR. Back at home, significant savings set aside by the American people during the austerity of the Second World War led to another economic boom and the growth of a thriving middle class with access to varied consumer goods. Suspicion of the USSR gave rise to anti-communist and anti-socialist sentiment, which some conservative politicians were able to use to weaken the influence of labor unions in the U.S. That suspicion and fear of communism has lasted to this day and is what made Bernie Sanders' platform of democratic socialism such a radical one by the standards of the United States. Simultaneously, various social movements, such as the civil rights movement and various women's movements, began to gather momentum, leading to the end of segregation and the shaking up of the social status quo during the 1960s. In the late 70s, a series of crises shook up public confidence in America's standing as the dominant world superpower. The loss of the Vietnam War, the Watergate scandal, and the Iranian hostage crisis were all big blows. America turned to a politician who talked big, and in 1980, Ronald Reagan was elected under the slogan, Make America Great Again, promising to strengthen the military and in return international prestige to the United States. Sound familiar? He's best known, though, for his economic reforms. Reaganomics, much like our local rogeronomics sought to reduce the size of government and deregulate parts of the economy in order to deliver economic growth. It sort of worked. America came out of an economic slump under Reagan, but like in New Zealand, inequalities have grown since, and many blue-collar jobs have disappeared. Reagan also cut taxes significantly, and slashed government spending on various unimportant things like welfare and health, but reluctant to have a balanced budget increased U.S. military spending. The rest of the 20th century saw the collapse of the Soviet Union, strong economic growth, a Bush presidency, a Clinton presidency, and in 2000, another Bush, George W., was elected, thanks to victory of the Electoral College despite losing the popular vote. On September 11th, 2001, the United States witnessed one of the worst terror attacks ever carried out on western soil, when al-Qaeda terrorists flew planes into the World Trade Center Twin Towers. Almost 3,000 people died, and another 6,000 were injured. The legacy of these attacks is with us today. Airport security was ramped up to prevent further hijackings. The Department of Homeland Security was founded, and the Patriot Act was passed, in order to detect and prosecute terrorism. A new image of terrorists appeared in the American psyche, that of a radical Muslim who hates America, the West, and Christianity. And with that came fear. There was a spike in the rate of hate crimes against Muslim Americans after 9-11. America's military entered Afghanistan to eradicate the radical Taliban and al-Qaeda groups based there. In 2003, America invaded Iraq. The Saddam Hussein regime had been accused of funding terrorist groups and of possessing weapons of mass destruction. This was used as justification. Public support of these wars waned, however. US forces became stuck in the Middle East. While the initial invasions were broadly effective, local populations often resented or were suspicious of the presence of American forces. And this meant that insurgent forces appeared. And then the American forces were stuck fighting the insurgents, and the cycle continued. Barack Obama, when he was elected in 2008, promised to end the wars in the Middle East. He was moderately successful with this. American troops were largely withdrawn from Iraq in late 2011, and troop numbers in Afghanistan were greatly reduced in 2014. But that fear of terrorism has remained. The rise of the Islamic State terrorist group in the Middle East has meant that the terrorist threat has stayed in the forefront of the public's mind. The style of terrorist attack has become more insidious too, with small cells or lone radicalised gunmen going out and killing dozens of Americans or Westerners in random attacks rather than killing hundreds or thousands in big plots. And at the same time, terrorism has become increasingly associated, in the minds of the public, with the Islam religion. For a country founded on freedom of religion, the US has become deeply suspicious and fearful of Islam. The Obama years were also a time of ever-increasing partisanship within American politics. The collapse of the stock market in 2008 plunged the world into recession. While the crash was largely the legacy of a deregulated banking sector, the banks, and not ordinary American workers, were the recipients of the bulk of government financial aid during this time. During this time also, the Republican Party fought hard against any new spending initiatives. For instance, when the government was in crisis as it approached its debt ceiling, the Republican Congress refused to vote to increase the debt limit unless government spending was reduced. And that's maybe fair enough. Borrowing forever is unsustainable. But the Republican Party were completely opposed to bouncing the books using an increase in government income through tax increases. Arguably, one of the big achievements of the Obama administration was the passing of the Affordable Care Act, which increased the eligibility for Medicare, free health care, and made health insurance more widely available. But again, it had been something that the Republican Party has fought and opposed tooth and nail from day one. They have campaigned heavily on the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, aka Obamacare, for what seems to me to be for pure partisanship. And then we arrive in 2016. A toxic partisan election campaign, followed by the election of the man who is possibly the most controversial president in the United States history, Donald J. Trump. It seems odd that the culmination of the last 250 years of this country was the election of a man so unpopular and with such reckless disregard for facts. What values did he tap into? Next time on Outside <laughs>